Hello, and welcome to the Bureau 42 Greatest Science Fiction Film Tournament Podcasts. I'm your host, Alex Case, and joining me today is my very special guest, David Stark here. <laughs> Good to be here with you, Alex. Okay, we're here to discuss um, Nausicaa, The Valley of the Wind, the fir- uh, not the first film directed by Hayao Miyazaki, but the first film produced and put out by what would become Studio Ghibli. Before we get started in talking the movie itself, we might as well talk a bit about our experiences with the movie and when we first saw it and that sort of thing. My ver- I, when I first saw the movie, I'd heard a lot about the film's reputation um, as being an excellent piece of film. I'd seen some of uh, Miyazaki's other works, but for a while, the actual original theatrical cut of um, of uh, Nausicaa was not available in the United States. So when Disney put out the um, DVD of it, I kind of didn't have the money to buy a copy at the time, but I did check it out for the library and watch it there. Um, watch it that way, and I was really impressed by it. That was an excellent film. Um, what about you, David? Actually, before this project, I had never actually seen Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind. I had, however, read the manga about 10, maybe 12 years ago. So it was it was really interesting because I'd seen pretty much all the other Studio Ghibli films since then. <laughs> And it re- it actually holds up really well. Um, there's a lot of themes you can see coming from it that have translated well into the other ones, but I really enjoyed it. <laughs> but until a few days ago, I had never seen it. All right, so probably talk a bit about the film's story. Film is a is a post-apocalyptic story, not necessarily of the immediate sort of post-apocalypse like your Mad Max or your Fist of the North Star or that sort of thing. It's set a thousand years after the after the apocalyptic events of what are called the Seven Days of Fire. And in the intervening millennia, Earth is Earth is being consumed by what's called the toxic jungle, which is basically a jungle made up of various fungal plants and massive insects, which is slowly creeping over the world and there are very, and there are a few outposts of human civilization along the fringes of of um, this toxic jungle one of them is the valley of the wind which because it's a coastal valley it has a um the, the it, it the wind blows off of the off the ocean as opposed to the other as opposed to from the direction of the toxic jungle this helps keep the spores away and we're first introduced in the movie not to Nausicaa directly, but to the character of Lord Yupa, who, first time I saw the movie, and I still get this vibe when I see it now, reminds me a lot of Gurney Halleck from Dune. Yeah, you know, I, I can really see that. Sort of the old warrior doing his best to advise the younger age. Yeah. Yeah, which <laughs> makes it particularly amusing because in the dub from Walt Disney, uh, Walt Disney Pictures did for the U.S. release, uh, he, they cast Patrick Stewart to play... Um, Lord Yupa and Patrick Stewart. If you've seen the um, the David Lynch version David of Dune, Lynch. plays Gurney Halleck. Oh wow! I didn't even get that, but yeah, <laughs> that's funny. And after our op- and then after introduced to him and Toxic Jungle, we see the uh, sort a sort of look at what happened with the uh, Seven Days of Fire through kind of an interesting narrative device of a tapestry depicting the events, combined with a little bit of flashback footage to show what happened and introducing the giant god warrior, which will play something of a role later in the movie. After the opening credits, we meet Nausicaa herself, who kind of becomes the is great sort of the prototype, prototypical iconic Ghibli, uh, not just Ghibli, but Hal Miyazaki protagonist. She's clever, she's gentle, but she's also very independent and very tough if necessary. 
Yeah, uh, Nausicaa, Nausicaa feels like good number of the other Studio Ghibli characters in that she seems very much above the material world, if that makes sense, sort of like a higher being that at least I got out of many of the other Studio Ghibli protagonists, such as Ashitaka from Monoke, which Nausicaa, which uh, the whole Nausicaa of the Valley of Wind feels very much sort of a prototype of, because there are a number of themes that carry over very well between them. Mm-hmm. She also reminds me of a character from a show that uh, Miyazaki wrote the concept for, but didn't get a chance to direct. That was uh, Nadia of the Blue of the uh, Blue Water. Oh, yeah. Which is directed by a person who we'll get to in a bit, Hideaki Anno. Oh, yeah. You know, I think I've heard of him. <laughs> so this sequence also introduces us to the Om, or Omu, which are creatures that uh, Miyazaki kind of modeled after pillbucks from the interviews. And they are these basically giant sort of beetles with in, with great, which are, which are a massive physical presence, not just in terms of their size, but in terms of sort of the d- destructive ability that they can have, because... Almost sort of like an elephant in that where the old joke goes, where does an elephant uh, sit down? Wherever it wants. But the other thing is they're also kind of very wise and they're depicted as being kind of actually psychically active. Yeah, with their little, uh, well, for lack of a better phrase, proboscis, they're, they're, I suppose. They're feelers, their little with gold the, feelers. Yeah. And also uh, a good deal of the, like, it seems a good deal of the economy of the Valley of the Wind depends upon them because uh, at the beginning of the film, Nausicaa's out and she finds a shell and she says, you know, we're not going to have to, you know, search for things for years because, you know, they can take every part of the shell and use it. Um, So Nausicaa finds the shell. We also learn a lot about the uh, toxic jungles ecology here. We kind of see a bit of this before with Loop, with, with Lord Yupa, but we also get a bit here which talks about how, like, in the toxic jungle, if you're not wearing a mask, you'll be dead in five minutes because the jungle, the spores in the jungle will basically um, rot you from the inside out. <sighs> and um, Nausicaa hears uh, Lord Yupa and joins up with him after distracting an Omu. And this we also learned the other important thing about the Omu is they have color-coded eyes depending on their mood. <laughs> if they're angry and in a rage, they will have red eyes. Otherwise, if they're otherwise calm, they will have blue eyes. Uh, which would lead to some, they use it for some visuals later in the movie. Uh, Yupa and Nausicaa return to the valley. We meet a few other characters, including um, a bunch of elderly gentlemen who are basically described as sort of uh, Nausicaa's adoptive uncles, including Mito, who in the English dub is voiced by Edward James Olmos. Um, uh, viewers may remember him from, um, well, New Battlestar Galactica, Blade, Run- Blade Runner, depending how far back you want to go, Miami Vice. <laughs> um, uh, I'm not willing to go back that far. And we kind of get the rest of the uh, introduction to the valley. It's very peaceful, very horticultural, very green and lush. Also, we learn that Nausicaa's father is dying from too much inhalation of the spores of the jungle. So, uh, and then one evening, a cargo aircraft from the nearing nearby kingdom of Tometa has a crash landing in the valley, and the only survivor dies shortly afterwards, a Princess Lestelle of Pejite, and she warns them to, to burn and destroy the cargo on the plane. And we don't quite know what that is yet. Very next day, we get more aircraft arriving from uh, Tolmechia. And it kind of says a bit about what, about what the Tolmechians are. And also we get to kind of the first really big shift between the the uh, film and the manga. Because the Tolmechians kind of show up and in the movie and basically kind of take over the place 
and then say, um, oh, figure the place, kill Nausicaa's father, possibly kill some other people, and then say, oh, we're just here to talk. Which I'm pretty sure diplomatically that's not how that works. Honestly, it, it seems like that old, uh, that old Star Trekking song, you know, we come in peace, shoot to kill, <laughs> shoot to kill, shoot to kill. Uh, yes. And we kind of get a glimpse here of Nausicaa's kind of own abilities here. In her own way, she's kind of like at home in that when she's enraged, she's something of an unstoppable force where she basically, almost with her bare, not quite with her bare hands, but close, like with a cane, kills like five Tomekian soldiers and nearly kills several more before Lord Yupa stops her and the Tomekians. Oh, man. He basically just showed up and says, I'm Lord Yupa, stop fighting. And they're like, you know what? Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So I want to see I want to see what he was like when he was young, that like everyone has instant both recognition and respect respect and a certain degree of fear. Absolutely. Oh, it's Lord Yupa. We really don't want to fight him. But there's like a hundred of us. No, no, you don't understand. We really don't want to fight him. And he's got, like, Miyamoto Musashi-level respect in terms of, oh, oh, there's a guy on the battlefield holding two katanas. Is that Miyasaki? Um, that, that Musashi? Uh, yeah, we, we we all want to be somewhere else right now. Except, you know, there's just going to be one guy who's like, no, I can take him. Yeah. And actually, yeah, that actually that does yeah. happen. <laughs> and through the sequence, we also meet Princess Kushana of Tomekia, who's leading this group, and her lieutenant, Kuratoa. Kushana is played in the uh, English dub by Uma Thurman, who does a pretty good job. Kurato is played by Chris Sarandon, who I don't remember from much of anything. I'm kind of looking now, see if there's anything that there's a bit of interest. Um, oh, never mind. He wasn't something I'm familiar with. He was at Princess Humperdinck and Princess Bride. Or Prince Humperdinck and Princess Bride. Really? Wow, yep. I, I did not get that at all. Good for him. <laughs> Yeah, he, he, he's much more, he's one of those acts in this where some of these guys, if you know the actor, their voice sounds like normally, you recognize it right away. I mean, to a degree, that's, that's, that is Patrick Stewart's blessing and curse, is he has a very distinctive voice. He can do a variety of roles, but you'll, ne- but you'll never mistake Patrick Stewart for somebody else. Honestly, uh, I sort of had that reaction to Sheila Buff, LaBeouf, but not, not in, not in the good way. <laughs> I was watching it, I was like, wow, that guy sounds really familiar, but I want to hit him for some reason. Why do I? <laughs> oh, God, it's Witwicky from Transformers. Yeah, it's the same. Or on the other hand, with the, with the chameleons, we have Sarandon. One of the uncles, Goal, is played by Frank Welker, who I believe is, well, coming off the top of my head, that's Starscream. No, no uh, Frank Welker was in Starscream. He was uh, Megatron. Megatron, and still. Megatron and Shock, uh, Soundwave, rather, and Nibbler from Futurama. <laughs> He's been, ah, you're right. Been um, yeah, so, so we so we have so, so we've got Frank Welker who was Medit- who was uh, Megatron. We have as the mayor of Pegite later we doing have doing his Hamill. Lord Ozai voice. <laughs> yeah, but again, the things where if when you think if when you normally think of Mark Hamill voice acting, you think of his yeah. Joker voice, like "Hello, bats." That sort of voice. Actually, really good. <laughs> So we also learn what the cargo was of uh, earlier Tomekian vessel, which was a embryo of a of a giant warrior. And the Tomekians, rather than trying to move it again, decided, "Oh, we're just going to occupy here and grow it to full size here in the valley." Meanwhile, uh, um, to keep the valley in line, they take several hostages, including Nausicaa, to take back to the occupation occupied uh, Pechite. However, on the way back, they are ambushed by a gunship, which is piloted by Asbel of Pegite, who is played by, in the English dub by Shia LaBeouf. 
And Asbel's kind of, at least with like the first, like for the middle act of the movie, kind of an idiot. I mean, most people outside of the valley don't quite have the same understanding of how the toxic jungle works than the people than we see the people in um, the Valley of the Wind have. But most people have a certain degree of sense, uh, well, like perhaps exceptions like Princess Hishana, have a sense of, for example, making large quantities of noise in the toxic jungle is a terrible idea. Killing large numbers of the insect life is a terrible idea, and you really don't want to mess with the gnome. Yeah, which, which is just odd because we're presented as the Valley of the Wind is very peaceful because it has the ocean winds keeping the spores out. So you'd think the people of Pegite would be even more cautious if they were in the jungle because it's more of a threat to them as opposed to like <laughs> making a metric ton of noise. And, use, and using guns when ev- when we were never actually seen guns being able to hurt any of the insects. In fact, actually, I believe there's a scene earlier, after the crash, we learned that there's a insect near the wreck that Nausicaa manages to lure to, into leaving the valley, and somebody considers shooting it, and somebody says, no, you idiot, shooting it doesn't do anything. Yeah, you know, it's like, won't do anything, it'll start screaming loudly, and we'll have an entire horde here. Yeah. So, the... So, Nausicaa goes to basically save his, save Ashbell's stupid butt. All the uh, three Pegite ships got, um, were otherwise destroyed. Uh, the barge got cut loose but managed to be kind of saved by um, Mito and, uh, and uh, Nos- Mito, Nasca and to a certain degree Princess Kashana in the gunship that was also brought along for the Yeah, the uh, Valley of the Wind gunship. Yeah, the, the Valley of the Wind gunship uh, that was brought along for the uh, ride. Because they found a gunship in the Valley of the Wind and like, we'll just take this, you know. Yeah, like, do we need anything to maintain any sort of air superiority protection here? No, no, we're fine. No, we'll just take this with us. Are we planning on using it? Really? Which, <laughs> which brings me up a very interesting point, because apparently the Toklamakan, Toklamakan, uh, Tolmekian, thank you. They're, apparently they've got huge planes, but they're all, like, paper thin. <laughs> Bec- yeah, the gunship, like, diving out of the sun, like, does one pass on one of the Tolmekian airships, and it just explodes. It's like, it, it, it's like made out of, like, the coating is being made of metal, it's made out of, like, paper-soaked in kerosene. Yeah, it's... It's there, and every time he, uh, Asbel goes by in his gunship, it's like one pass and a sh- and an enormous heavy plane goes down, and we see they're full of gunners all over. Yeah, they, they are like the B, like the B-17 Flying Fortress from World War II on steroids. Yeah. And they have, they, have, they have tail gunners, they have roof gunners, they have belly gunners, they have side gunners. Their gunners yeah. have gunners. Actually, yeah, because at one point a guy comes out with like a handheld machine gun from like the Top Gun thing, so yeah, even the gunners have gunners. At which point we kind of learn about, um, we get kind of a better understanding of what's going on with the uh, jungle ecosystem. We get a bit of this earlier. Nausicaa has a sort of hidden chamber underneath the castle where she's doing scientific experiments on the flora of the toxic jungle and discovering that with that given uncontaminated soil and uncontaminated water, they are non-toxic and they, they're just fine. So they're sitting in the soil and water that's caught of the toxic jungle that's making it toxic. It's not just a, it's not just the, the fauna that's, do, and the, the fauna and flora that's doing it. 
at which point as part of it, after Nausicaa and Asbel try to get away from the insects, they end up basically falling through the bottom of the toxic jungle into a lower area where they discover that, hey, the air is perfectly breathable, there's no spores, the water is pure, the soil is clean, and Nausicaa kind of puts, it, puts two and two together and realizes that the toxic jungle is basically purifying the contaminated soil and water and sort of re-terraforming the planet. Yeah. <laughs> and... And from a scientific point of view, way that makes no sense whatsoever. <sighs> it's evolution does not work well, that way. This is divine intervention at its finest. Well, we can get into that when we talk about uh, the manga a little later. Yeah. So Asbel and Nosco return to Pegite and discover the place has been leveled. The People of Pajite had the bright idea to chase out the Tomekians by getting a whole bunch of Omu angry and getting them to rampage into the city and kill everything and ultimately leading it to be consumed by the toxic jungle. Oh, no. uh, and we shortly learn after this that the survivors are planning on doing this again to the valley so that they can retake the embryonic giant god warrior. And Nausicaa, being princess of the Valley of the Wind, is somewhat upset by this, by this uh, turn of events. Yeah, yeah. And what's very interesting is that this is explicitly the men of Pegite's idea. As we later discover, the women thinks it the women really don't think it's a good idea. And mm-hmm. it's just it's effective, but it's a it seems like it was really one of those cutting off your nose to spite your face sort of things. Well, considering the amount of destruction did the Pegite, probably be more like cutting off your face to spite your nose. True, true. Because there's <sighs> nothing, I mean, there is nothing left of this town. We see a few ruins, which, um, as we see when the destruction of the Ohm, I think they just went around that place. Because they just, because the Ohm just flatten everything when they go over it. <sighs> yeah. When they go through the toxic jungle, they leave a big cavernous gap through the jungle where the Omu went. Omu went. And even the portions of the sea that aren't destroyed, it's going to be consumed by the toxic jungle, so whatever's left you don't yeah. want. <clears throat> so, meanwhile, back in the Valley of the Wind, things have kind of escalated to a head, particularly after the town people discover that the forest that was protecting the reservoir has been completely contaminated by toxic spores that they weren't able to sufficiently clean up before the Tomekians invaded at the beginning of the movie. And so we have a full-on uprising going on, and with this, the... The people of the valley kind of end up getting forced back to the ruin of what looks like an old submarine, though they describe it like it was a spaceship. Well, what's interesting is they find out they have the ruins, and the and they're like, you know, we need our... And they go to the Tolmechians, and they're like, we need our equipment. And, you know, one of the soldiers is, no, you, you, we can't do that. They'll, they'll have an uprising. And, uh... <laughs> Chris Sarandon's uh, Kuratoa is like, just give him everything but the guns. You know, realizing spores coming is going to make their day bad, too. So, like, all the villagers go out with flamethrowers and just burn down the entire forest at the insistence of the humorously named old woman Obaba, whose name means well, old woman. And that's just mean. Well, to be fair, they do do a pretty good job of saying that, hey, like, the not just, like, spores in the trees, but, like, the roots are infected, oh, yeah, they, uh, the branches are infected. They do kind of make it clear that, hey, the, like, before... No, no, no. A- absolutely. They explicitly show cutting into several trees and find out they're just completely infected all the way through. At which point they do decide to burn the forest. Which made sense to me. You know, not a good... You know, yeah. it's... 
better than losing everything. And then yeah. for some reason, uh, we get we cut to a scene with Nausicaa. Then when we come back, the people of the Valley of the Wind is just a full uprising. So, which honestly, it, it didn't make much sense to me because there was no reason for them to do this all of a sudden. Yeah, we're we're, we're missing information yeah. there. That there's if this were the movie Grindhouse, there'd be a card there that reads "Scene Missing." <laughs> Yeah, or or real missing or something like that. Um, get up with the fact that that there's that they are specifically missing information that we the audience are specifically missing important information. So this leads to the kind of final co- showdown where we uh, climax of the movie where we have the villagers hold up in the sort of submarine. We have the Tomekian this branch of the Tomekian army on the outside, and then we have the sp- uh, stampeding Omu on the way. So Princess Kishana, deci- who has already returned, decides, okay, we need to break out the giant god. Not right? Re- no, it's not ready yet, but we need to break that out. And this is, leads to the scene that is sequence that is directed by Hideaki Anno, who I brought him up earlier. Uh, apparently, partway through the making of the movie, um, they started falling behind, and Animage, who was running um, the Japanese animation magazine, I sort of compare it to Starlog in the United in the U.S. Or if you're a fan of horror, uh, Fangoria, basically uh, they've been running the Nausicaa manga, and the editor of the magazine was someone involved in the film's production, and he ran an article saying, "Hey, the people working on, on the Nausicaa film need animators." And this guy read the act, came in off the street to Miyazaki's office, and handed him a storyboard saying, "Hey, read this. Tell me what you think." And Miyazaki read it and hired him on the spot, and not just hired him, but gave him the animation animation director spot on the Giant God Warrior sequence, which is a heck of a way to get your first job and a heck of a first job to get, in, in particularly in animation. Yeah. <laughs> and the scene is great. It, it, it's relatively short. It's like two or three minutes, give or take, but it's very well animated. And we have, in terms of the detail on the God Warrior, we have the kind of oozing, uh, melting flesh on it, and the bone structure underneath. We have the, the explosions from when the beam is fired, the beam itself. It, it's really impressive. Yeah. The God Warrior itself is, uh, to quote the mummy, still juicy. <laughs> Yeah. And just, it was, it doesn't look that much like the rest of the film. You can really tell there's someone else going on, but that's not to its detriment because it really does give this sort, it gives the God Warrior this excellent sort of does not belong here sense that we're getting, that we've been getting throughout the whole movie. You know, it's warning, you know, it's something we don't want to mess with. And it just shows up and you feel this does not belong in our world. At least to me it did. So Nausicaa. Uh, after the God Warriors attack ultimately fails because he gets off two shots and then completely disintegrates. Do this response of everyone watching going, you know, maybe that was for the best. <laughs> yeah. Nausicaa brings the baby Ohm that was Ohm that was meant to be the uh, sort of bait for the rampaging Ohm horde back to the uh, Ohm and she is in the process trampled. Trampled? Somehow trampled, but at the same time sent flying. <laughs> Yeah, it, 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 it's her, her getting hit is kind of in the, done in the way of, like, when you see somebody get hit in a car in a movie where they end up flying over the car. Yeah, like that, but under a trampling horde of ohm. <laughs> yeah, under, like, a 20-story tall armored uh, beetle. And, however, her sacrifice is not in vain, as basically, as a sort of messianic figure... The Omu stop their rage, presumably with the telepathic contact of the baby, and heal Nausicaa's wounds. And at this point also her clothes, borrowed some clothes from the um, 
Pidgeites, um, or one of the Pidgeites, uh, during her escape, and her clothes were stained with the blood of the baby Omu who she saved, and now we have this kind of callback of a prophecy that we mentioned earlier in the movie about a chosen person who will come flying above a field of gold and will the world and that sort of thing. And when we first hear the prophecy, the male pronoun, he, they show a guy. Um, the uh, But the, the kind of end the movie is, oh, it wasn't a he who's going to save the world, it's, it's it's a she, it's Nausicaa. She is the person who's foretold. And then the movie kind of pretty much wraps up from there. Uh, we get the denouement over the uh, closing credits through montage. Yeah, I got to say that the whole prophecy, I think, was one of the weaker points of the movie because it specifically says the chosen warrior in blue. And while occasionally we see a couple of background characters wearing blue jackets, Nausicaa is, with the exception of when she's wearing the pink Pegite dress, is always dressed in blue. And mm-hmm. it didn't work as well as it did in the manga, which where she was stained happened much, much earlier. And in a black and white manga, it works better because, you know, everyone dressed in the same colors obviously except for when except for when she gets it stained blue from then on her outfit is shaded differently than everyone else's setting her apart at least as i remember it it's been many years <laughs> so let's talk transition from the manga to the uh, anime that nausicaa that, that nausicaa was originally conceived by as a film but it was a original film and he wasn't able to get it made there wasn't any manga or anything else it was based on and the studios didn't want to take a risk on something that hadn't gotten some establishment as a property, either whether it was having a manga or a novel that was based on to build off the existing fan base, or something that had a manga ongoing to help promote the movie with it. So Miyazaki had met the editor of Animage, whose name just completely fell out of my head, back when Miyazaki was directing his first film, the uh, Castle of Cagliostro, which was... Loop on a, the third. Uh, yeah, it was a loop on the third movie. He'd actually directed some episodes of the show before this, and so it was kind of building off of that. And producer basically, basically went, hey, how about we have We'll run it in Animage, and once it... And then that way, you can tell the story, and if it gets turned into a movie, great. If it doesn't turn get turned into a movie, that's okay, too. You've got a chance to tell it. And after it ran in Animage for a while, the company who published Animage, hey... The collections of this are doing great. We'd like to option this and make it into a movie. <laughs> so he made the film with uh, a lot of the animators who would go on to be in Studio Ghibli, but at that time were working for an animation studio called Topcraft. Now, have you seen any of the 2D animated works by that were put out by... Like, like not the, the cell animated works as opposed to stop motion stuff that came out from Rankin Bass, like uh, The Hobbit, like uh, Return of the King, like The Last Unicorn, then you've seen some of Topcraft's work before. A lot of those guys from that went on to work on Nausicaa and then on to studio, uh, on to join studio themselves. Obviously, some differences were made from adapting the manga to the anime. In particular, the manga wasn't quite finished yet. Um, I read some of the manga. Probably one of the interesting stylistic differences is the translation of Hayao Miyazaki's personal drawing style to the screen. The art in the Nausicaa manga reminds me a lot of the art style of Mobius. Mobius is, uh, particularly how Mobius does textures. Um, rather than just like a dot gradient for how he does textures, he does lots of like narrow lines and dense lines in addition to um, just gray, grays and dots. Whereas in the film, looks up here, um, the, animation, um, the style kind of changes a bit because of the adaptation to animation. Reminds me a bit more of, the artist's name is falling out of my head. He's the guy who did a lot of album covers for Yes. Roger Dean. Yeah. A lot more of Roger Dean, particularly some of the elements with, like, the Toxic Jungle in particular, has a real sort of Roger Dean feel to it. Rounded edges, 
not just an organic feel, but a, a, a rounded organic feel, not much, um, not a lot of harsh lines to it. So, um, also there were some narrative changes. There's a, for example, in the Nausicaa manga, there's like a third faction, um, that's involved the whole first plot line. Remember, when the, when the Tlemecians come to the valley, it's not to invade or anything like that. It's, they actually have a treaty with the, um, Valley of the Wind, and they come to get the gunship to help them in a war with another faction, with, an, with another empire, so more of a, uh, theocratic empire. And the whole thing with Pegite is part of that. They also get further into it in the plotline where we learn how the toxic jungle came to be, which is basically it is in fact genetically engineered by some by a bunch of scientists who are currently in cryogenic freeze in attempt to terraform the world and make it habitable to the humans of, of the past again. Yeah. Which, you know, makes sense, but comes back to the, I can't actually give you credit for that because, I can't give you credit for that in the movie because you didn't put it in the movie. <laughs> Which, you know, makes sense, but it really does feel like it's not the whole story. Mm -hmm. The other thing was, I'm going to talk about here is, I mentioned that the U.S. release of the uncut version came fairly late in 2005. This is not 2005 release was not the original U.S. release. The original U.S. release came out in the late in uh, 85 by New World Pictures, which is owned by which was owned by at the time I believe Roger Corman. Yeah, it was, it was yeah it was uh, owned by Roger Corman. Who, if you know anything about film, you know that's a warning sign. No. Who licensed it had some of the of the dubbing done by um name just popped out of my head the uh guy who did uh, Macross oh um yeah Carl Mason. Carl Masek. However, they, there were some studio enforced cuts um dropping the movie length down from two hours to ninety five minutes so you're basically losing about half an hour of movie so a quarter of the movie is gone the environmental themes were also cut entirely in fact the use of the Giant God Warriors is a heroic thing, as opposed to a a, a horrific thing. It it's, cuts out of the sort of otherness and hor horribleness of what the Giant God Warrior is. And thus, a lot of the environmental themes are lost. And basically, after this, for a while, Hayao Miyazaki basically refused to option any of his movies for U.S. release. And it wasn't until John Lasseter came to him and basically said, Hey, I'm working with Disney. We will go out of our way to make sure we, we, we do that. We don't cut anything. We will stay true to the spirit of your work. He agreed. Though famously, one of the executives from uh, one of the producers at Studio Ghibli, it's widely credited to be Miyazaki, but I can't find confirmation of this, after the deal was signed, sent a gift of a katana to Disney with a note reading, No Cuts. Oh my god, I have just found the theatrical poster for the 85 release of Warriors of the Wind, and it is glorious. Nausicaa is not even... She's on it, only in, like, a tiny picture of her in one corner riding on her glider, which they insist on calling a glider, despite the fact that oh, it has it an has engine. engine to get started, but it glides much more often. You see gliding more often? Well, that's not a glider, then, if it has an engine. But we do see the same design without yeah. the engine. We have... So. Um, uh, Asbel's more front and center, and he's standing on the top of the God Warrior like Paul Atreides standing on the sandworm in Dune. Yes. <laughs> I almost wonder, I need to look at when the release date of the Dune movie was, because it looks like... Uh, Dune 84, I want to okay, say. Okay, so like a year before this, so I could see them cashing in on an iconic image from Dune uh, to try to get people to watch it. Yep, yep 1984. <clears throat> so... Other than that, um, one of the things I want to talk about is, is Studio Ghibli kind of revisited the movie a few years ago 
a short film done for a Tokyo Museum exhibit about tokusatsu, which is Japanese live-action special effects movies, that was directed by Hideaki Anno, called The Giant God Warrior Attacks. It is available online for streaming on Vimeo. I'm going to put a link to it on the uh, in the uh, show notes for the for the uh, for the MP3 and on Bureau42.com. Basically, kind of depicts the beginning of the Seven Days of Fire, except instead of being an animation, this is the first live-action thing put out by Studio Ghibli. And it honestly, the it actually looks pretty good. Yes, you can absolutely tell it's a puppet, <laughs> but not all the time. And it's one of those things that I think could have been solved really easily with just because the God Warrior they're built and they look very organic from just the look of them. But it does the texture doesn't quite work. So I probably would have just taken like a tub of Vaseline and smeared and you know put a thin layer all over to make it look juicy. Yeah, I I, I could I could see that because we could. I'm not sure how well that would work with because it, it it appears to be operated sort of like a Bunraku puppet. Yeah, yeah. And so I'm not sure how well the addition of Vaseline or something else to give it a more yeah. organic look would give away some of the motion of the puppet. Otherwise, it looks really great. I mean, a large portion of this is either sort of just shots of Tokyo, both the model, which is an incredibly detailed model, and or of uh, stock footage of Tokyo with narration over it, including some of Sori Pidiakiano's. We'll get about get into this later. His sort of signature brief cards of text before we get into the actual destruction which oh. makes some of the destruction of Tokyo of like Tokyo we get from like the recent Godzilla movies like Final Wars and other more recent works I don't kind of look tame by comparison yeah because it's just completely wiped out it, it really gives a feel of the utter devastation of the set that fits with something called the seven days of fire there is yeah. some Japanese voiceover over it. I have I wasn't really able to find a actually subtitled release of it. I was able to find a translation of the dialogue, and it's basically it basically kind of sort of oral history description of the days lead, of what life was like leading up to the seven days of fire, and to certainly be a kind of we didn't really know what was coming kind of thing. Surprise, surprise! Life went on until it didn't. <laughs> this movie. I mean, it started Studio Ghibli. Um, Studio Ghibli brought movie, and lots of major sort of direct film stuff came up out of this in terms of uh, in, in terms of this movie was influential. But lots of movies made this. Hideaki Anno basically kicked his career off with this movie. Um, from there, he went on to do stuff like work on just general animation on the Macross film, the first one, before going to start Gynax, and we'll talk about that a bit later when we get to uh, discussing Macross, Do You Remember Love, and uh, Gynax's first film, uh, Wings of Ponyamis. From also, um, the general tones inspire a lot of other works. Um, if you played video games, the old NES games, you might recognize the, the, the this is kind of a tonal inspiration for Crystallis for the NES, the sort of bird mounts that we see... Lord Yupa use kind of look a bit like Chocobos from Final Fantasy. A bit. A bit. Um, and all sorts of various other stuff. It's This kind of kind of changed the anime the anime industry in a lot of ways. Uh, and this also be one of the, honestly, the best animated movies of all time. Uh, unfortunately, um, the movie was kind of late in the U.S., and so it didn't really got the same recognition that it got in the U.S., well, in the U.S. that it got elsewhere in the world. It kind of came out too late to get a, uh, like, an Academy Award nomination for Best Animated Film, or anything like, well, obviously, Best Animated Film didn't exist at that time, but any other anim- nominations. And I don't think it even got a Hugo Award or anything like that. Yeah, it didn't get a Hugo Award or Saturn or anything like that. Surprisingly, it didn't get nominated for Japan's version of the Hugos, the Scion Awards, either, um, which is a little surprising. 
Well, not terribly. I mean, it was absolutely great film, but it's a better film in retrospect than it was, I think, at the time, because at the time, the anime films that coming out then were very different tonally. It's one of those, Tron was great, but it wasn't great then. <laughs> uh, let's talk about how it fared in the tournament. So, Nausicaa the Valley of the Wind managed to make it to the to advance the second round. It got through the general screening, and of all the anime films that were in the tournament, it really fared the best. It did not, did not win, but it beat X-Men First Class. It beat the 1951 When Worlds Collide. And then it ran into Gattaca, which is, I to a certain degree, as far as a straight-up science fiction film goes, is to a certain degree a better movie there, because Gattaca kind of plays off themes and fears that we're still kind of talking about now. Um, genetic discrimination based on predisposition for disease, genetic makeup, that sort of thing. Gattaca went on to, to beat, like, Daily Earth still, and several other major science fiction films. It's, there's no real shame in losing there in the tournament. The only thing that stopped Gattaca was our quarterfinalist, Star Trek II. So, so that, any final thoughts on Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind? It's good. Honestly, I would recommend going out and seeing it. It is 30 years old at this point, but the animation still stands up. It does look comparatively primitive in the design of it, but the animation itself is it's still it's as good as, you know, a modern Ghibli film. Well, it's not that good, but it's close. It is smooth and clean. I agree. It's it's also a film that's recently gotten a Blu-ray release, and having watched the Blu-ray release in preparation for this podcast, the Blu-ray release, the animation holds up under Blu-ray. There are some animated films where you look at them on Blu-ray, and you start seeing the major flaws and the weaknesses and that sort of thing. But this film is not one of them. I definitely recommend checking it out. You won't be sorry you did. You may be hearing more of David in the future. If you have any questions, please email us at podcast at bureau42.com. Until next time, I'm Alex. I'm David. Thank you very much for listening.